this week we happen to have Chris Parsons. Chris Parsons. And Chris, what do you do? So I work for IBM Systems in the UK. I work as a machine learning engineer. So basically my role is to go out and work with um, customers trying to build their own AI to use machine learning and uh, get the most of IBM's hardware. Fantastic. So Chris, big question that our customers are asking us at the moment. Is big data better? And what I'm trying to ask is, is you know, a lot of our customers are saying, you know, why do we need to bother with big data? What's the what's the buzz? You know, there's there's a lot of um, fashion around big data at the moment. It's the fashionable term. It's what everyone thinks they need. Mm. But when it actually comes down to nuts and bolts, is big data better than just taking a bit of a punt or looking at a smaller data set? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's tricky because it's such a nuanced answer. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the the obvious the obvious answer is well, yeah, of course it is. You should have as much data as you can possibly get your hands on. But yeah. then I think actually, when you start to go under the covers, why do you need as much data yeah. as you could possibly get your hands on? There's um there, there's an adage in uh, data science or machine learning that is you are always better off going and getting more data than refining your model. So if you build a, a, a AI system. So you build a system to, I don't know, recognize different types of cats, and it's not very good at doing it. You are always better off going and getting more photos of cats. And tagging them, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Than, than going and, and refining your model so it's really accurate at recognizing he, he, those cats. Here's my question to you, though. Mm. When you have more data, does it not become exponentially more complex to actually process? Uh, yeah, so the, the computational complexity grows as as your data. But does the grows. value that's, that's essentially gathered from, from having more data, does that not overweigh the, the greater data and the greater overhead of, of computation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it can do. And I think that's why it's a difficult question to answer, because mm. your knee-jerk reaction might be, let's go and collect all the data in the world. But actually, the data you're getting from a smaller source is just as useful mm. as that larger data would be. Yeah. I think ultimately it's about taking the data you have yeah. and looking at what your use case is. What business challenge are you trying to solve for? Uh, I think it's tricky, um, and I'll hold my hands up here, as, as technologists, the first thing we want to do is solution. Right. Yeah. The, the first thing we want to do is go, well, this is the stack we need to, to solve that problem. And, and ultimately, I think that that's not, for, for big data, isn't necessarily helpful. Yeah. I think it's useful to take a step back and go, hey, what, what problem are we trying to solve for? What is the business need yeah. in addressing this problem? And actually... What data do we need to do that? And I think you've hit on a really, really important point there. All big data is one of the only areas where it's not about building and thy shall come. I think if you look at infrastructure, cloud, private cloud, storage, all these things, even security to some degree, you build something because you know that workloads will evolve, that, that, that use cases will evolve, that come in and, and leverage that platform. Mm-hmm. Whereas big data is very much absolutely locked into the outcome you're looking for and that answer that you're looking to derive. Mm. Um, so one of my other questions would be, you know, Arrow's definition of big data is not necessarily quantity. It's about dimensionality, the number of different... So if you're talking about cats, it's not just looking at one type of cat. It's looking at multiple different types of cat, multiple different sizes of cat, multiple different cats in different locations so that you can weed out backgrounds, so that you can understand, you know, what a cat looks like from the front on, from the side on, from the back on, upside down, inside out. Maybe not inside out, it's poor cat. Apologies, yeah. RSPCA. <laughs> yeah. But you get the general idea, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, and obviously, but once again, that, that then 
increases the complexity of processing once again. You know, what technologies do IBM have that can help you with dealing in, in the big data space? Mm, sure. So, well, I think it, it really <clears throat> depends ultimately on what your challenge is. If your challenge is um, outright storing the data, then we've got a portfolio of storage hardware and storage software that will do a fantastic job of storing it uh, and storing it and ensuring that the integrity is there and it's yep. resilient and, and that kind of thing, but also that you can have the high-speed performance access you need when you suddenly decide, now I want to look at those photos Absolutely. of cats. I feel like we're getting a bit hung up on cats. We well, we love move, cats. Move on that. Yeah. Well, uh, dog too, really, that's fine. <laughs> exactly, there we go. <laughs> Me too. Um, we should definitely move off cats. We should all go to dogs. But, uh, but, um, no inside so, out dogs, so we've got it. No, not at all. Wouldn't do it. <laughs> but we've got this sort of, I think, um, performance storage solution, but then also we've done a lot of innovation and a lot of work around our compute platform. Mm -hmm. I think that actually if we look at big data, and I really loved your description of uh, determining or defining big data in terms of dimensionality rather than volume, yeah. I think that's smart. Because otherwise you could call emails you know, big data and of they course. aren't necessarily, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that I think that's that kind of frames it really nicely. But I think that we've, uh, from an IBM perspective, done a lot of work and uh, research into designing compute platforms capable of processing this data. I think we've been in a bit of a chicken and egg solution uh, space for a while now, where um, we've had the data, or we didn't initially have the data, and we had enough compute to process it. Yeah. And then suddenly we were able to store the data. We were getting it from other sources. We had image data, we had video data, we were looking at social media feeds. We had all these different streams of data, the, the dimensionality that you were talking about. But actually, at that time, we didn't necessarily have a compute platform capable no. of doing that number crunching. So I think that what we've seen uh, with you know, power systems and the latest generation of servers as well as our storage portfolio is suddenly we've seen this convergence where now we have the data you need to build these systems. We yep. have the data you need to get that insight. And also now we're in a position where we've got a compute platform capable of doing something with it. Well, I think actually if you look at most enterprise organisations, they've sort of been told to store everything, mm. never delete a thing as disk became cheaper and bigger and the cost per gigabyte absolutely fell through the floor. Mm -hmm. I think organisations are very... Um, against deleting any data you know they're capturing as much data as possible but i couldn't agree more i think the the challenge around turning that data into information is very very acute at the moment and it's really top of the table and, and, and very the highest priority on at the boardroom especially with things like gdpr coming down the line mm. and um you know whether you're listening to this pre or post the 25th of may i think there's still going to be a lot of organisations that are desperately trying to figure out how they GDPR themselves. Yep. And I think actually one of the biggest um, opportunities for partners at the moment is helping organisations not necessarily um, take the data and say, right, what's personal, identifiable, what's personal identifiable data and how do we get rid of it or how do we GDPR it? But mm. thinking to themselves, what's the value of this personal identifiable data? And actually, is it as valuable as... Raw, from raw data about people and their clicks through on websites or their transactions in a store or a restaurant through to actually, could we turn this into anonymized demographic data through an mm. analytical process, through taking the raw data we've got and turning it into valuable insight to that particular retailer or that particular services organization and essentially storing it then as anonymized data. But that's an analytical process, a mm. big data process. So mm. we, it, I couldn't agree more. I think the computational platforms are here today. Um, 
Power, obviously, leading the way. Um, I think that what you've got in that portfolio, especially partnered with NVIDIA, mm. um, I don't know if you want to quickly touch on, on what's unique about the NVIDIA IBM relationship. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that kind of segue. Yeah, you set what me can up I there. Say? Um, so, so, with Power Systems, uh, we made, I guess, a, a decision back in 2013 to, uh, to open source the power processor architecture and create the Open Power Foundation. And when we did that, we uh, created this foundation with, uh, there were five founding members. So IBM, Google, Mellanox, Tyan, and critically for this point, NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. So we open sourced our processor architecture. And the idea behind this foundation, which now has over 400 members uh, operating across the entire stack. But when we open sourced it, the view was that actually what we do is create innovation to build hardware solutions for specific workloads. It turns out that uh, machine learning and and these kind of big data workloads are really specific in terms of the demands they put on on the physical infrastructure. Um, And the NVIDIA GPU is the heart of that. They're completely ubiquitous, and they're becoming essential for this workload. Because of our collaboration with uh, with, with NVIDIA and through the Open Power Foundation, we were able to do some really unique things to our processor architecture, where we essentially changed the way um, our processor could communicate in some circumstances, so that it could talk the same languages the GPUs talk. Yeah. And that essentially uh, removes an, a massive bottleneck, because suddenly you have your CPU, your processor, talking at the same speed as your GPUs can. So there's not this kind of lost in translation phase that you could get in other architectures. Yeah. And that lets us demonstrate a huge speed up for these kind of machine learning workloads. If you look at you know, TensorFlow or Cafe and Chainer particularly, we can demonstrate like a, a four times speed up, picking up the workload and just moving it over and dropping it there because wow. our environment's got that bottleneck alleviated. So, so you can do some really cool things with the platform. And you can also um, go to much, much bigger model sets mm. than other, other platforms as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, um, so I, I think that's a good point, is it's not just, so being able to do it in it's one, one faster, one set, it's, it's, far, it's right, bigger, right? right? Exactly, but yeah. give us an idea of, give us an example of what bigger means and how it helps. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that, so, so there's a limited amount of space on the GPUs in, in one server. So, so the logical thing you might think to do is, well, I'll go and add another server then, and mm-hmm. if I've got two servers, it should go twice as quickly, <laughs> right? The problem is, it doesn't no. necessarily. So you can you can add more servers, but then you've got to do communication out over the network. You've got to handle you know uh, data ingress into other systems, and things can actually slow down. You can actually lose performance yeah. as your environment starts to scale. So IBM Research spent a lot of time uh, working on solving that problem and working on solving that problem in a transparent way. So as a developer, as a data scientist. You don't need to worry about configuring that or setting it up or making that kind of thing happen because we've got a transparent library called uh, Distributed Deep Learning, or the acronym DDL. Um, we love an acronym. If we can crowbar one in, we you will. Do, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and DDL lets you scale your environment. And it lets you scale your environment near linearly to up to 256 GPUs. Mm-hmm. So we're talking terabytes of data, right? Terabytes of GPU memory. And we can scale pretty much linearly. Yeah. And, and that, I think, has two advantages. One, it means when we talk about that big data with the high dimensionality, we can, we can scale with you. We can scale with your data. I think the, the other point is, though, if you're working with less data than that, but it's taking you too long to process, you double the size of your environment and things take half as long, right? So give us a practical example of where this is really, really, really valuable and where you're really changing the way that people have their, their data processing workflow 
that, that you guys have unlocked massively? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was working with uh, a customer that does a lot of uh, CFD work. So they're in you know, high-value manufacturing. They do a lot of CFD work for, for their engines. Um, and actually, when they do a CFD run, so they'll simulate hours worth of, of, um, of usage, right? And uh, when they do that CFD run, the data they get out the back of it in its raw form is like two terabytes. There's a massive volume of data just from mm. one CFD run. Now, their current process in order to be able to analyze that and get any insight from it is to ignore 90% of it. Right? It's just to get rid of it and uh, essentially undersample their data. So they yeah. take sort of they take a frame every I don't know minute or so, and then that's the frame they take as as being the fact, and then they move on. What distributed deep learning enables them to do, or enables organisations in their position to do, is to take that data, take that diverse cloud of information, and use it all. Yeah. And to look at it holistically and to process it all as one chunk, you know, they can work with all of it, not just a subset of it. So one of my, one of my best examples, the ones actually you presented quite recently in an event we were at, was about your ability and, and a very specific ability to be able to look at much more higher resolution images mm. of cancer cells. Can you yeah. give us, just tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, and can, can, more importantly, compared to the existing technology that exists and, and actually the difference between what you can do versus what, what that can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've got uh, distributed deep learning, which obviously lets us scale out of one node into multiple different servers, uh, and, and that's fine. But there are some problems where actually your model, the, the problem you're trying to simulate, the model you're trying to generate is so complex, or the amount of data you're trying to process it on that has too great a volume in itself, like the example I just gave of CFD runs, mm. for instance. Um, or particularly the example that you just mentioned of uh, human cancer detection. Yeah. And you look at this data, and if you look at the kind of images we're used to seeing, we're looking at images of maybe 4K resolutions becoming yeah. fairly ubiquitous now. Yeah. But this data we're looking at is scanning electron microscope images of a human cell looking for cancer sites. And that image is 70,000 by 60,000 pixels wow. because it's a scanning electron. So it's a massive, and that's a single image, right? So, for, so when we're talking 4K, yeah, we're, we're not, we're not like even 3, near 3,000 yeah. by 2,000, I think. So you're is, talking factors above in resolution. Huge, right? It's huge. It's, and, what's, it's, and what's the largest image that a, a normal um, sort of... Yeah, yeah. So the standard input size that CAFE and TensorFlow, which are the common frameworks, are yeah. looking for, they're looking for images around a thousand by a thousand. So about HD. Yeah, yeah. About so even that. 4K would be way too high resolution right. to, to go into one of these normal platforms. So 4K, yeah. So you'd have to start to do some work by the time you got to 4K. So you'd either have to drop the resolution back to HD or yeah. carve the image up and look at it in four and different tracks. And obviously, by doing that, you lose a huge amount of detail, mm -hmm. which obviously means that you lose a huge amount of of accuracy is to be able to detect cancer cells. Well, exactly, exactly. If you're looking at a, an image of a, a cancer cell and you're looking for really tiny little sites in it that, that to a doctor would say cancer or yeah. not cancer, but you're looking for really small sites, you can't be going and doing things like dropping resolution no. because the minute you start to do that, you lose all that data. Yeah. You lose all that information and suddenly you don't detect cancer, right? So it's, it's critical that you can view things holistically. So we've got um, a solution, uh, another acronym, LMS. So large model support lets us solve that problem. So you're constrained in a server by the amount of GPU memory you have, the amount mm -hmm. of memory on a GPU. Um, and, it, and it is relatively expensive, if you look at it comparatively. 
what we're able to do with large model support, because of that NV-Link technology, which means we're not hurt by moving data around inside the system, yeah. we, can, we can do those fairly inexpensively, right? Inside the box, we can move data around pretty much freely. Because we can do that, we're not hurt by leaving stuff in system memory no. and moving it over when we need it. And that means you can start to take that massive image and not drop the resolution or carve it up into separate chunks and distribute the workload. You can look at it holistically, and that lets you do some really powerful things. And you start to think, actually, there are some pretty major workloads that, you know, through previous uh, generations or through other <coughs> architectures, you couldn't even conceive of yep. solving. Right. You wouldn't even know, you'd suddenly have to start making sacrifices before you even attempted to address the problem, yeah. which of course you don't have to do with some of our technology. Fantastic. Well, look, Chris, thank you very much. That was absolutely brilliant. No problem at all. Cheers, thank buddy. You. Thank you. Cheers.